I'm turning this morning to Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 26 through 28. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 26 through 28, and our subject for this morning is Christ and His glorious church. Christ and His glorious church. Beginning there in verse number 26, we'll read down through verse number 28. Of course, this is the continuation of what the Lord had spoken and what Paul had given as a way of a directive to the husbands. Verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. Notice with me that expression that Paul uses in verse 27. He says that he might present it to himself, a glorious church. There is an emphasis on the presentation of this church being presented to himself. Of course, the himself refers to Jesus Christ. By the life and by the death and by the resurrection of Christ Jesus, his church has been redeemed from sin, cleansed from all unrighteousness. Paul teaches in this section, especially beginning in verse 25 down through 33, with regard to the bride of Christ. Not just the enjoyment of the blessings that the bride of Christ experiences, but understanding what true acceptance before God actually is. To be accepted before God the Father is strictly and only upon the basis of Christ. It is the church's belief in Him. It is the church's repentance that is one of the most central truths to understand what the Christian life actually is. And we see that in the church, and in the church is not meaning in the church of anyone who calls themselves a church, but Paul uses the word church to refer to Christ's bride, those who are God's elect, those who are in the faith. It is a misnomer to simply say that Christ gave himself for anything and anyone that calls itself a church. Uh, a church that claims to be his church without Christ as the center and the sole basis ceases to be a church. You can put that name on a building. You can call a congregation a church. But what Paul has in mind here is only the church that is of God. So we see that the church, Paul mentions in other places, that we are seated together in heavenly places. When Paul mentions that in the book of Colossians, he is making reference not just to people in general, but the church. It is being delivered from this present evil age. We often make the mistake of thinking we're waiting for full deliverance. But do you realize that being part of God's elect, being part of the church, means we have even been delivered from this present evil world. Uh, just because we are a part of it does not mean that we are consumed by it. It doesn't mean that uh, we are uh, helpless. We have been delivered even from this present evil age. What does the present evil age characterize by? It's desire for sin and it's hatred of Christ. The church has been delivered from that. 
We've been delivered from our sin and we have been delivered from the sin that separated us. So this reference to the church, again, needs to be taken with the reality that Paul is writing about God's elect. Not only are we justified by Christ, but the church has a true and everlasting fellowship with he who justified us. This is the background of what Paul has in mind as he's used Christian marriage as a way to illustrate Christ's love for the church. It would be wrong to simply say that Ephesians 5 verses 22 through 33 is about Christian marriage. That it's only about that. No, it is in the context of Paul demonstrating what Christ's love for the church is. And then he uses an illustration by saying, now here's how a man ought to love his own wife. It is indeed when Christ considers his church, he considers it his bride. And it is indeed a glorious church. Imagine being called glorious in spite of all of our imperfections that we still have. Imagine being called glorious even though we still sin and we still do what we're not supposed to do. Yet Christ says in verse 27 that it will present himself a glorious church. One day, as he mentions here, it will not have any spots and will not have any wrinkles. It'll be without blemish. You see, the reality is we still are spotted by the world. We're not consumed by it, but we're spotted by the world. Uh, We are wrinkled, so to speak, and yet we also know that we are still with some blemish in of ourselves. But in Jesus Christ, there is no spot, there is no blemish, and there is no wrinkle. So Christ will present to himself this glorious church. I have to tell you, many times when I read through this scripture, I did not see the great emphasis of the presentation being to himself. Many times I've read through this and I assume that Paul was talking about the presentation that took place when that presentation of the church given to the Father. And yet this is a specific mention of this bride being presented to the church. We also know that this fellowship that we have with Christ is a great comfort. My comfort today is found in knowing that no matter how much I struggle, no matter how much I suffer in this world, Paul is describing a relationship that we can look to Christ knowing that he loves us and he cares for us. And he loves his bride. Now imagine when Paul uses the illustration to the husbands and says, now husbands, I want you to love your wives the way Christ loves you, even with your spots, even with your wrinkles, and even with your blemishes. This is a wonderful picture of what Christ really is. Christ in His love for the church gives this example to husbands about what it looks like for a husband to love his wife. Does Christ love the church wholly? Yes. Does Christ love the church completely? Yes. It is Christ's love for the church that should be the model for what believing husbands show towards their wives. Now we might ask the question today from a worldly perspective. Why should a husband love his wife? Well, I ask you the question, why should Christ love the church? Christ loved the church because the Father gave the church to him. Our wives, husbands, our wives have been given unto us. They are given, wives are given to be helps 
They are given to be companions. They are wives that were given as a result of the grace of God. And as we looked at last week, the husbands are to treat those wives as their own wives. We learned about the submission of wives and the submission to their own husbands, not to men in general, but submission to their own husbands. And yet, Paul now talks about how husbands should love their wives just like they love themselves. You see, the reality is we have no problem loving ourselves. You actually, all of you, love yourself. I love myself. And it sounds arrogant, it sounds horrible, but it's truth. We love ourselves. And the greatest way we know we love ourselves is how we take care of ourselves every day. How we look to our needs often first. Yet Paul is giving an example of a husband's love for his wife is not when he looks to himself first, but he looks to her first. He looks because he has been given that wife by God himself. Notice again that example that Christ, his love, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Who did Christ give himself for? The whole world? No, his church. That's why we be very careful by making this expression that Christ died for the whole world. That's not biblical. Christ died for his church. Now again, we don't know who his church is. Ultimately, we know that not until the last of his is brought unto him will Christ come and come back to this earth and claim his bride. But we have a comfort in that knowing that he won't come a second sooner and none will be left behind. But Christ did not die for the whole world. Christ died for his church. And I know that's a controversial statement for many who've grown up in various churches. But what comfort would there be in understanding that Christ died for the whole world when knowing that specifically Christ's love was demonstrated towards his church? Just like husbands don't love everyone else's wives. At least they shouldn't. They love their own wife. See, we don't talk about this often. We want Jesus to die for the whole world and love the whole world the same way. But biblically, Paul says, no, he didn't die for the whole world. He died for his church. Husbands should be willing to die for their own wives, not for someone else's wife. It's the picture that Paul is giving here. It really is a beautiful picture. But Christ gave himself for his own church, his own bride, his own spouse. When was that church, when was that bride given to him? Before the foundation of the world. This is not a bride that was given after we saw, was it worthy of being loved by Christ? No, it was given before the foundation of the world, knowing there would be spots, knowing there would be wrinkles, knowing there would be blemishes, and yet Christ would still die and love his own church. On a personal note, I, I am thankful that God loved me and died for me through Jesus Christ because I know I'm filled with spots and filled with blemishes and filled with wrinkles. I know I am not worthy to receive the love of Christ. Yet the Father is the one that gave the church to Christ. The church whose names are written in heaven. Folks, don't ever get over the fact that if you're one of Christ and you're in the church, your name is written in heaven. And that name is written and can never be removed. That name cannot be separated from the Lamb's book of life. It is there. It's there permanently. And you know when it was, you know when it was etched there? Not when, you, not when you suddenly came to faith, but when, before the foundation of the world, He chose you to be His bride. 
Imagine today a husband choosing for himself a bride he's never met, a bride he's never seen. And this is a crude illustration because Christ already knew us. But most husbands would never marry a wife that they had never met and didn't know. As a matter of fact, what Paul has in mind here, we'll talk about that in just a moment, about how a man would be a spouse to a woman, a woman who would become his bride. Yet, if there were spots and blemishes and wrinkles found in her, he would have the right to call it off. That's really key to what Paul's talking about here. So the Father, having given the church to Christ, is now the elect of God. But we see that Paul doesn't just write here to love the church and give himself for it. He gives the purposes, and that's primarily the focus of the message this morning is verses 26, 27, and 28. The purpose of why Christ loved the church and gave himself for it and why he calls it a glorious church. Verse 26 says that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Why would the church, the bride, need to be cleansed? Well, the reality is in our own sin natures, we are defiled. We are born with original sin. Before the foundation of the world, before we're ever born, before when we're conceived, we're conceived in sin. But even before we commit a single transgression of our own free will, we fall in Adam. We are part of the fall. But Christ loved and espoused us prior to Adam's fall. So before Adam even fell in the garden, we were espoused to Christ. Adam fell as all of us would have fallen. You, had you been man's representative, you being the federal head, had God chosen it to be that way, you would have fallen just as Adam fell. And you would have plunged the entire human race into sin. In Adam, we all sin. And because we all sin, we are all found guilty before the throne of God. We're all spotted. We're all blemished. We're all wrinkled. We're all under guilt. We're polluted. We're corrupt. We're depraved. Christ gave Himself for them. A polluted, corrupt, depraved sinner. Christ gave himself for his church. There is no more glorious truth than knowing that and knowing that personally. To know that Christ died for you in spite of you and in spite of all the sin that you still commit in here and outwardly and in your attitude and in your actions, yet you are his bride. And it never enters into Christ's mind one time to dispose of you. We've learned on Wednesday nights, we've moved on from that, but we talked a lot about divorce and we talked a lot about the characteristics of what constituted a right divorce. Understand something, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ, Romans tells us. Not even a spot or a blemish or a wrinkle. Yet, Christ gave Himself to deliver them out of that depraved state. He gave Himself as a sacrifice to them that He would remove their sins, make an atonement and a satisfaction for their sins. He shed His own blood to cleanse them from themselves and their own sin. 
And in doing so, some mysterious way, he worked out a righteousness. A righteousness that would justify the bride from all of their iniquities and to make them appear to be pure and spotless in the sight of divine, of a divine justice of God. Imagine that. We appear righteous. <laughs> Mind-blowing. We appear pure. We appear spotless and without blemish, but only because of the righteousness of Christ. Now again, it's an appearance to us, but truly when God the Father looks upon his children, he only sees the righteousness of Christ. Imagine that. Imagine that being that bride, that glorious church that Paul writes about here, this righteousness that he sanctifies and cleanses them. Now this phrase here about sanctifying and cleansing here is not so much about the sanctification of the Spirit in this context. Sanctification is a result of the effect or the death of Christ. It's the effect of us being converted. But what he is talking about here is the justification by the blood and the righteousness of Christ. It is that which cleanses us and sanctifies us. It is the washing in his blood. It's not about baptismal water saving. Now he uses the terminology with the washing of water by the word. This is not a reference to baptism. This is where uh, some of our uh, counterparts in other denominations say here, this is where the Bible says that a person must be baptized in order to be converted. That's not teaching any sort of manner. This is not baptism. Baptism is not expressed scripturally by a washing. Baptism does not purify. Baptism does not cleanse from sins. Baptism is not the means of sanctification. It's not the means of regeneration. And the washing of water here is not the reference of even the graces of the Spirit. But here, to be cleansed from sin only occurs by being washed in the blood of Christ. There is no cleansing from sin in water. There is no such thing as holy water. An interesting, overheard an interesting discussion in the spring at school. And we had to stop the lesson because it was mentioned and someone was convinced that there was actually holy water. There's nothing holy about water. No matter how many times a priest blessed it, no matter, I, mean, I, could, I could take a bottle of water and try to do all things to it and say this water is blessed because I took a drink out of it. It's blessed because this was the cup that Jesus... There is no washing that comes from water. There's no cleansing that comes from water in the sense of what Paul is talking about here. This washing of water is a reference to the fountain of the blood of Jesus Christ. The Bible says it is the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin. Not water, not baptism. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. But we're told a little bit more because he says with the washing of water by the word. Okay, by the word. Not the words of baptism, but the words that the gospel brings. What does the gospel bring? The gospel brings the good news and the glad tidings of not just pardon and atonement and justification. Don't lose sight of this. The gospel, yes, talks about atonement, talks about justification. But the gospel is also cleansing. There is forgiveness from sin. 
Do you realize conversion means nothing if there's not the forgiveness of sin? That's why there cannot be conversion, there cannot be salvation apart from repentance. This idea that says I can be saved by just simply asking Jesus into my heart, that's not cleansing. Cleansing is through the blood of Jesus Christ and it's repentance, it is the the gift of God. You see, the gospel is not just doesn't just speak to the outward man. You realize the gospel speaks to the conscience of man. A man, when he hears the gospel, he's hearing something that is not like anything else he's ever heard. He's hearing something that is speaking to his very soul. And it's something much different than how a person stands on a, on a grand vista and looks out over a mountain or looks out over a valley or looks out over the ocean and just feels warm and emotional. That's not what the gospel does. The gospel speaks to the conscience and it says, you are a sinner. You are spotted and you are filthy and you're corrupt. But the blood of Christ will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. There is no gospel presentation without the acknowledgement of the corrupting nature of sin and the need of the cleansing that comes only from the blood of Christ. But notice again, we come back to the verse we began with, verse 27, that he might present it to himself a glorious church. Now we know scripturally there is a presentation of the church by Christ to the Father in his death. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, he was in a sense presenting the church to his father at his death. He's gathering the elect all together in one. They're being reconciled to God and they're being presented to God the Father, holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight. The Bible is very clear that that's what's taking place. Jesus Christ, who is now in heaven, represents his church. He represents them and he makes intercession for them. And in the last day, whenever that day is, no man knows the hour, not, doesn't even have a clue. So if you think you know when Christ is coming again, you're deceiving yourselves. You have no idea. And if you think you can put it on a calendar and you think you can put it on a date based upon events and current events, you're fooling yourself. You have no idea when Jesus Christ is coming again. But when he comes again, he will gather his bride that will be holy, complete, and perfect. And at that time, he will present that church to himself. Often in a wedding, the minister will have the couple turn and he will present them now as that couple Mr. and Mrs., whatever the case is. He's presenting them as now a couple. Notice the wording. Christ presents the church to himself. That's truly a glorious thought. He is not taking the church and turning into the world and say, here's my church. He's presenting that glorious church to himself. Imagine this, this presentation of himself, whether or not we're not told here specifically, whether or not it's in this life or when it's when he comes again, but the only ones who will be presented to him as his bride 
will be clothed in his righteousness and will have been cleansed and washed in his blood. You realize there will be no one in the church who is not clothed with his righteousness. There will not be a single person standing there who has not been washed in his blood. There will be no intruders. There will be nobody who snuck in by the back door. There will be nobody there who's by their own good works and by their own free will apart from the illuminating power of the Spirit of, the gospel, of, the Spirit of God. It'll be a pure church. That's what the purity means. It'll be undefiled. It will be without spot. It'll be without blemish and wrinkle. This is a very expressive statement that Paul is making. Paul is showing us this presentation that when Christ presents this church to himself, he will look upon them without spot. And of course, we read in the book of Revelation about the marriage supper of the Lamb and that, that the beauty of that is for another day. But what a beautiful time to think the bride, the church, will be arrayed with pure white linen with the glory of God upon it. Folks, we don't really understand what Paul was writing here about this glorious church. We take the idea of a church and sometimes and sadly we treat it as something that is just like everything else. We sadly over the last year and a half we saw people treat the church as just another business and just another entity, another corporation, another nonprofit. But you understand that the true church of God is the very bride of Christ. This little church on Petrie Road is not just some other organization. I hope you folks know, I don't look at this as some organization. I look at each one of you as the very bride of Christ. And the seriousness of what we do and why we do it and why we're so careful about because we are the bride. We are His own church. There is no church, no matter its size, that's in Christ that's more important than the other. Whether there's a thousand people or two people sitting here, in the eyes of God, those are blood-bought children. That's why I never look at people and I never look at this church and I never say, you know what, boy, there's got to be some, there's got to be a better church out there. You know, because every church is the bride of Christ if it's part of the true church. If it is people that have been cleansed and washed in the blood of Christ, perfect? No. None of us are perfect in this life. But yet, Paul writes about a time when the full appearance of God's glory through Christ will be seen. Again, he goes more specific, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. When we see scripture where the Bible says we shall be like him and we shall see him as he is, that is a reference to being able to see Christ's glorious body. You and I have not seen Christ with our eyes. We have not seen him for who he really is. Here's one thing we've never done. We've never looked at God through sinless eyes. Even when we weep over the Scripture, even when we come to, come to a place where we're overwhelmed by the majesty of God, you realize you still have not seen Jesus Christ through sinless eyes. You have not seen God's glory perfectly yet. 
But at the time when that presentation takes place and the glory of Christ is now seen, it will be truly joy unspeakable and full of glory. There will be really no word to describe what this presentation is going to look like. Imagine our souls being completely conformed to the image of Christ. Imagine having an uninterrupted fellowship and communion with Him. Imagine having a perfect knowledge of Him. Imagine being always in His presence. Imagine Jesus Christ Himself taking complete delight in you. Folks, our minds are struggling today to even comprehend what I'm saying today. The Spirit's got to give us understanding because this, this is the very depth of the riches of the love of Christ. Now again, he's telling Christ, or Paul's telling husbands to love the, their wives like Christ loved the church. The church will be free from all spots, all blemishes. There'll be no more hypocrisy. There'll no, be no more false professing. There'll be no more heresy. No more sin. No more iniquity. I made mention of this as we began. Remember, in the, in the Jewish tradition, if a man was espoused to a woman, he often would be espoused to her on the condition that there were no spots found in her. Now imagine, imagine the, the bar that was being set here. If a man was married to her and spots were indeed found in her, she would be rendered unfit and ultimately could be rejected by the bridegroom. In its human form, it's, about, it's the epitome of wickedness. It's the epitome of, I mean, imagine this. This is what we talked a lot about on Wednesday evenings, about how a, a man in those days could simply just say, my wife looked at me wrong, I'm done with her. And as long as I gave her a bill of divorcement, as long as I followed the legal standard, then I could be free from her because I found a problem with her. Do you realize if Jesus Christ held us to that standard, he would do away with us today? Yes, even the, right, the most righteous among us, he would do away with you. And he would say, there are too many spots, there are too many blemishes, there's too many wrinkles in you. You are no longer a spouse to me. That's where the foolishness of people who teach that you could lose your salvation. You're teaching that Jesus Christ's love for you stopped. And the Bible says he cannot stop loving his own church. A man can promise his wife, I will love you forever and I'll love you unconditionally. I'll love you no matter what. And he can be sincere. Can I tell you something this morning? Christ's love is not sincere in the sense that we think about sincere. A man may tell his wife on their wedding day, I will always love you. And 10 years later, he doesn't love her anymore. Because why? Because she's not what he thought she would be or vice versa. Christ, you were a spouse to him, spots, blemishes, and wrinkles and all. And he still said, I will never leave thee, never forsake thee. And I can't love you more. And I can't love you less. No matter what you do. There is no love like that on this planet. There is no husband that truly loves his wife that way. It's easy for us to classify what a good husband is. It's easy for us to classify what a good wife is, depending on what your expectations of that spouse is. 
Some people's spouses, they would say, that's not a good spouse, but to that bride or to that bridegroom, that's the perfect spouse for me. But Christ did not choose us because we were spotless. He didn't even consider it. Imagine never being rejected because of the spots and blemishes. And here's the key. But that it should be holy and without blemish. You see, Christ presenting Himself to the church was for the purpose, or the church being presented to Him rather, was for the purpose that it would be holy and without any blemish. Justified by His righteousness, washed in His blood, sanctified by His Spirit. And then Paul really puts it to where we are. Verse 28, so, another large theological term, so. I love Scripture for this because the Scripture is always so clear when it uses terms like but, nevertheless, or so. This indicates here I'm now going to bring down to you an illustration of how you husbands, after I've just told you about the beauty of Christ and His glorious church, I'm going to tell you now, husbands, how you ought to love your wives. Now remember, he's already told them, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And apparently... That's not enough for us to totally get it. And I, I agree with that. So, ought men to love their wives as their own bodies? Pardon the expression, but now Paul is really stepping on toes. He doesn't use this phrase of love your wives as your own bodies because he knows what the big problem is. You're going to have a hard time loving your wife because you love yourself too much. Folks, the biggest problem you face in this world is not the evil that's knocking on your door. The biggest problem you and I face is what looks back at us in the mirror every day. Like I said, you may look in the mirror and you may see spots, you may see blemishes, you may see wrinkles, you may see a lot of outward physical things, but understand your greatest, your greatest problem, my greatest problem, is what you think about yourself and how really, truly, you love yourself more than anybody else. Now, I know the righteous, holy thing to say is, no, 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 that's not me. But you realize that's why Paul's telling these husbands this. He's talking also about all that Jewish tradition that said, you know what? If I find a problem in my wife, I'll just get rid of her. No, he says, you love your wife the way Christ loved. And more specifically, let me put it to where you are. Why don't you love your wife like you love yourself? There's probably, again, by application, there's probably a lot of women who understand what I just said, who would say, you know what, if my husband loved me the way he loves himself. Again, I'm not trying to step on toes, but this is, this is the language of Scripture. This is not just some random thought he throws out there. It's in context of Christ and his glorious church being presented to him. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. It was even a common saying that the Jews in this church of Jews and Gentiles would have understood. Even the Jews in their traditional books would say that a man's wife is as his own body. It's one of the precepts of their wisest of men. The Jews' tradition even taught that a man should honor his wife more than himself. He should love her as his own he should love her as he loves his own body. Why? That's what we're going to get to next week. 
Because Paul is going to introduce and remind them of the one flesh principle. A man ought to love his wife as he loves himself because they are one flesh. The ultimate purpose of marriage was to demonstrate the one flesh. If we approached marriages today with the understanding, even more than this is a covenant you're making before God, we would have a, tough, a different view of what marriage really is. Paul seems to speak in the very language of his own countrymen. Remember, these Jews would understand. They would understand his doctrine. They would understand the point he was making. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. Why should he love her this way? Because she is one body and flesh with him. Why does Christ love the church? Because they are one body and one flesh with him. Folks, consider that for just a moment. To be one with Christ. I'm not talking about some random unity. There's a lot of screaming going on in churches about and in Christendom saying, can't we all just be unified? Often they're being unified by something that cannot be a unifying factor. To stand on God's word alone, as we do, you today are a disruptor. You are a divider. This is not the message the world wants to hear. The world doesn't want to hear that the only book we need is to stand on the word of God. As a matter of fact, you will be the one who is accused of propagating hate. But do you realize that the message of the Bible and the message of Paul is seeing here is the message of love? It's the message of what true love looks like. The world is screaming for real love, but do you know the only real love we see that is lasting and permanent and real is the love that Christ has for his glorious church? That's real love. Yet Paul says that a man ought to love his wife the way he loves himself. The love of Jesus, what an amazing thought. Paul says in other passages in Ephesians, he said it passes knowledge. To pass knowledge means it, it goes much more beyond what we can fully comprehend. In other words, there's not enough descriptive words and terms to define it. This love of Christ is the most amazing thing that you and I have ever been privy to understand. Love between two people in this world, it's comprehensible. Like I can, I've met couples, and some couples who've been married a long, long time, I can actually comprehend their love between them. I, I can see the evidence of it. I can hear it the way they talk to each other, how they treat each other, and I can comprehend it. What I can't fully comprehend is Christ's love for the church. I cannot fully comprehend it. Even the greatest example of that married couple I'm telling you about, that pales in comparison to the love that Christ has for his church. And folks, I'm talking about people that they, they, they just amaze me how they love one another. That still doesn't even come close to Christ's love for his church. 
So how do, what do we do with this? It's incomprehensible fully because the love between an infinite God to sinful, finite creatures, we can conceive it, but it's inconceivable in its totality. Why? Can any of you today really grasp what I'm... Can you really grasp this? You've got one up on me if you're fully grasping this because I'm still trying to grasp it. Because my mind keeps running back to an example of a husband and wife, earthly speaking. And I'm not even scratching the surface. That's why Paul started with the church and Christ's love first. He didn't give a married couple as the example. He gave Christ's love for the church as the example that the married couple should try to emulate. What is the responsibility of a husband? This is a practical application I want to leave you with. What's the responsibility of a husband? He should build up his wife in the love of Christ. That husband should build up his wife in this incomprehensible love that Christ has for her. And that stings. If you're, if, man, if you're honest today, that stings because you're sitting here thinking, wow, I should build her up first. I should build her up in this amazing, inconceivable love in her first. Instead of loving myself first, I should love her first. Why? Because Christ gave himself for the church. Men, what do we do? We're supposed to give ourselves for our wives. Paul's confronting reality here. He's confronting the reality that many Christians never think through what a real Christian marriage is. They just think because they had a marriage in a church building and they used a Bible and they were married by their pastor that they have a Christian marriage. That doesn't make your marriage Christian just because you got married in a church and they sang a few of the recognizable marriage songs and they read 1 Corinthians 13. That doesn't make your marriage Christian. Paul simply gives us this application here that what's contrary or what's popular rather in culture today is simply just adopt whatever the culture says is marriage. And folks, that's happening at a rapid rate. So in these verses, and we'll, fin- we'll conclude next week, Paul gives us this conception of marriage that should be understood in the metaphor of Christ and His glorious church. From this point, we see that the role of the husband in the marriage is not only significant, but it's important and it's vital. Yes, it talks about headship. It talks about the headship of the wife. The husband is to imitate Christ in his love for the church, his bride. A husband should imitate Christ's love for the church, and he should do that towards his own wife. There is not a higher calling. Unless I want to say something, it's probably going to, it'll shake our cages a little bit. I often hear often people a lot of say there's what, what the highest calling in life is. And people often talk about jobs and they talk about responsibilities, they talk about vocations. But you know there's not a higher calling in the order of God than for a husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church. And not only is there a higher calling, there's no greater privilege. That Christ actually appoints and gives someone as a help me to that husband in order to help him but he should love her as Christ loved the church. This relationship with husband and wife is not like every other relationship. 
This is for another day. And because we're family integrated, that's why I'm talking about this. The husband and wife relationship should be far different than the husband and wife relationship with their kids. You hear me? It should be different. And your love for your children does not replace your love for your wife. And mothers, it doesn't, your love for your children doesn't replace your love and respect and submission of your husband. This is a special relationship. I love my kids dearly, but I love my wife differently. That's not an insult. That's the relationship. That's, that's what's happening here. The husband is to live with his wife, not just as some other portion, but his other half. One flesh. I'm afraid many young people, when they leave that altar of marriage, when, they, when that preacher announces, let no man put asunder, they have no idea what the responsibility that was just laid upon them actually was. That's what we're talk about next week with the one flesh. The husband and the bride relationship is completely unique and it demands the highest priority. Men, put your wives above all others. Love her as Christ loved the church. Help her love God and Christ. Help her love Christ more. Instead of being the husband that demands obedience and demands submission, why don't you love Christ more and lead as Christ would lead? Christ did not exert His full authority when He came, did He? He submitted Himself. He humbled Himself. Even the Jews were amazed. Why didn't He come to set up His kingdom now? Because that time had not come yet. I hope this will help us see Christ and His love for His glorious church. Let's conclude with the hymn on 206. We'll stand as we sing. 206.